This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Yesterday, uh, England Burlington closing arguments occurred yesterday in the pig trial, which is what it's become known as. That's the trial of Anita Crines, uh, who has been charged with uh, mischief for giving water to uh, pigs that were on their way to the slaughterhouse. Uh, the defense uh, raised eyebrows yesterday with the characterization uh, of Ms. Crines as uh, a Gandhi, Nelson Mandela type individual doing the same kind of compassionate work. Uh, joining us to talk about this whole scenario is uh, Camille Labchuk, Executive Director of Animals for Justice, and uh, she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing this morning, Camille? Hi, Bill. Great. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Uh, what's, you've been following this story. Give me your read on what's been happening here. Well, that's right. I've been following it very closely, and I was in the courtroom yesterday watching the closing arguments. And, uh, you know, what we've seen now is, uh, I think, uh, six or seven different days of, of evidence in this case and arguments and many, many different trial dates, all for something um, really simple. It's yeah. possible for someone in this world to give water to thirsty pigs, to show an act of compassion, and to, to really apply the golden rule in the same way that we teach our children and our parents taught us. And so, uh, you know, what we saw yesterday, I think, was a pretty passionate summation of uh, both the evidence and also the morality of the situation, why the state is wasting resources prosecuting a woman simply for being kind. I'm not a lawyer, I, 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 but I, I'll offer a legal opinion. I can't even understand why this has gone this far. Uh, I, I think that you're echoing a lot of thoughts right now of, of other people. I was tweeting all day from the courtroom yesterday, live tweeting. And I, my Twitter feed was uh, flooded with people saying, why are we wasting resources prosecuting this woman? You know, as I'm sure your listeners have heard, there have been all kinds of cases, serious murder charges dismissed because of delay, thanks to a new ruling from the Supreme Court. And, you know, the government knows it needs to do something to save court time and to prioritize the really important cases. So why they're prosecuting this one is still beyond me. I, I mean, the charge is mischief. I get that. But it... <laughs> It, this is an act of kindness. It's and 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 the, what I found amazing too is this, that the the charge seemed to be based on this idea that first of all, you know, pigs are not humans. We get that they're property. Pets are property too, sadly, and you know, which is why they don't seem to have status in the law, unfortunately. But over and above that, uh, there was an assertion made at one point in this trial. I know you were there, Camille. That uh, that well, they weren't even sure it was water she was giving to them. It could have been some substance that was going to cause them harm. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, I know. that, that, you, you that, that, that runs contrary to exactly what she wanted to do in the first place. I mean, she works for an organization called Toronto Pig Save. Do you really and truly think that somebody with that kind of passion is actually going to go and do something harmful to those animals? I'm going to harm them so you can't harm them. I mean, give me a break. Oh, it's just, it just defies reason. It's completely absurd. And, you know, the judge really hammered the Crown prosecutor on that point yesterday because the Crown kept trying to say, Something like, well, we don't really know that it was water. We're not really sure. Maybe it was something else. It could have been something else. And the judge was like, what evidence is there that it was anything but water? It's just ridiculous, Bill. It's just, this is bizarre. It's, it's now I, you were in the courtroom. I wasn't. I'm just getting the information from our Sarah Kane, who our CTML reporter was there yesterday following this and, and sending reports back. It, the, the absurdity of this whole thing, it just seems ridiculous. And uh, it's going to be the first week of May, obviously, before uh, we, we get a, a ruling on this. But I, I'm just hoping at that time the judge just says, thank you all for your time. Uh, you can go now. Uh, you know, Anita, thank you for your time. Thank you for your passion. Goodbye. But uh, you, don't, you never know, do you? Well, no, you never know. But, uh, you know, as a lawyer, I, w I watched the case unfold. And I think everyone in that courtroom and Anita's lawyers certainly have a very good feeling about how things went. 
what really ended up happening in this case is that Anita managed to turn the trial around and put the pig industry, the farming industry, on trial. What we heard during that trial was evidence about the horrific conditions that pigs endure before they reach our dinner plates. Um, evidence about how they're slaughtered. They uh, they heard from a neuroscientist who has studied brains and pig brains, and she says pigs have a sense of self. They can anticipate the future. Uh, they have personalities. They have friendships. They're just like cats and dogs in that sense. Um, but the most heartbreaking thing for me was that she said that they know what's coming. They know that they're going to be slaughtered, and they experience a sense of dread. And I think what Anita's managed to do with this trial is expose that to people and really show them that pigs are not just property. They're, they're actually a lot like us. Well, I'm an animal lover. You know, we have dogs. We have, uh, you know, I love animals of all description. Um, you know, we go up north when we go up, we feed the deer. I mean, we just, we just love this sort of thing. And, and uh, to, to characterize somebody as a criminal who's trying to be kind to animals, I, I find somewhat problematic. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, you, you have to wonder whether there would have been a prosecution if um, someone was walking a dog in the park and the dog was thirsty and it was a hot day and had no water and Anita put water up for the dog. Would there be a prosecution in that case? I doubt it. I think this is the, the, the farming interest uh, really pushing the Crown and the police to lay charges here. And I, I wish the Crown and the police hadn't listened to them because it's a waste of everyone's time. Uh, in Where's this going? I mean, what's the takeaway from this now? Is this, this has gained attention, and, and I don't know if anybody's really proud of what they've done in this whole case, uh, except for Anita, obviously, trying to be compassionate towards animals. Uh, it just seems as if everybody's pushed this whole process, and, and, and it's one of those things where at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm concerned, Camille, that everybody's going to look at it and say, why did we even do this? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think this is the kind of case that really makes people lose faith in the justice system. They don't see fairness being done. They don't see justice being done. You know, there's evidence presented in this trial that the pigs were being transported in violation of federal transport laws that are supposed to protect them. It was a very, very hot day when they were being transported. They were clearly thirsty and they appeared distressed. That's illegal. So why is the state prosecuting Anita for trying to help them? Instead of going after the people who are transporting these pigs in these horrible conditions. There's a, as a lawyer, I mean, let's talk a little bit about legalities here, if we could, uh, Camille. There, there's a line you can cross in, in protesting where you are harming other people's property, you are harming, or you're, you're, you're doing something to them. You know, the old idea that you all have the right to express your views here as long as you're not in, infringing on the rights of others. I don't, th- I don't see that you cross that line. No, I, I don't see that either, and, and I don't think the judge does either, frankly. The judge's questions yesterday were focused on one main theme to, to the prosecutor. He was saying, where is the damage? Where is the interference with this property? What did she do that prevented them from using their property in the way that they wanted to? Because keep in mind, they wanted to bring those pigs to the slaughterhouse and slaughter them, and that's exactly what happened. Anita giving the pigs water along the way had nothing to do with what their ultimate goal was. I mean, if there were a lineup, uh, just to draw another scenario, where they were blocking the truck, okay, maybe maybe you make an argument to say, well, you're, that's commerce. You're blocking commerce. You're blocking somebody's ability to make a living, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we can debate whether or not that's actually the case, but I don't see that she, it, you know, there was a process in place here. I don't see that she did anything to harm that process. No, I, I mean, the truck was stopped end. anyway, wasn't it? So the truck was stopped anyway at a red light, and then it remained stopped because the driver exited the truck and came and confronted Anita and called her some um, nasty names. She didn't stop the truck. But, you know, what happens these days? I actually went to one of these vigils for the very first time myself yesterday morning before the trial uh, got underway. 
And it was extremely powerful. But what we saw was the police stopping the tracks for a moment so that the activists can go there and, and greet the animals and say goodbye to them in their final moments. So, you know, in many cases, the police are complicit in the stopping of the trucks. Um, but, you know, Bill, like you said, it's not a situation where the trucks are blocked. It's not a situation where someone went and spray painted on the side of the trucks or the side of the slaughterhouse. It's just not like that. It's just simply giving water to a thirsty animal. Let's let's talk a little bit about the implications of this, and and we you, you know talk about the process of of, of you know Suchet, what happens to these animals before they end up on somebody's plate at some point in in the future. Uh, there are always concerns about how the industry runs, and 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 it's not just to do with animals and with meat, etc. I mean, but I, I my sense of what has happened over the last twenty to thirty years, especially is that the only pressure that's really moved industry to try to clean up their act, to try to, to, to make it more humane in some cases, or to try to make it b- better for all of us, is because of incidents like this that bring the shine a light on, on what is actually going on on a day-to-day basis. Well, I agree with you. I think that public pressure is the only way to get companies to clean up their acts. And when a trial like this exposes the nasty, horrible truth behind the pig meat industry, I think people become sensitized to it. And you could say the same thing with undercover investigations into animal agriculture facilities that have been happening now in Canada for several years. When people see the actual conditions that animals are enduring, and, and they are not pretty, I think more and more people leave animals off their plates uh, and they demand corporate change. They demand policy changes so that animals uh, don't have to suffer, suffer some of the worst of these abuses. Let's, let's look at the broader picture here for a second. I mean, you've got this case here uh, of Anita Krines, who is, is charged with giving water to pigs. Uh, it sounds ludicrous for me to even say that. It's, the words come out of my mouth. But but in the broader picture, and, and you've talked about this with us in the past, Camille, we, we have concerns now, and I think societal concerns, not just isolated concerns by a small group of radicals, as some people like to characterize, characterize them, but I think a societal concern now about animal safety and about about looking after animals. And we've seen this happen with, uh, with aquatic parks now. We've seen this happen with game, no, I was going to say reserves, but even zoos. Uh, Ringling Brothers is closing down their circus now. Well, you know that's because I think there is a societal pushback to say you can't do that to animals. In that context, I'm surprised that charges were even laid in this case. I couldn't agree with you more, Bill. It still mystifies me and everybody else involved in this case that it got this far. There are all kinds of safeguards along the way that give everyone an opportunity to withdraw the charges. But, you know, more broadly, you're right. There is an increased societal concern for animals. We're thinking about animals and how we treat them. And a lot of people, when they see uh, what's actually going on, feel deeply uncomfortable with that. I mean, just last night, the Vancouver Parks Board uh, just banned or took the first step towards banning the, the Vancouver Aquarium from keeping cetaceans in captivity anymore. So pretty soon there won't be any more whales and dolphins at all at the Vancouver Aquarium. And that was all because of public pressure. Well, and the same thing's happening at SeaWorld south of the border now, isn't it? Well, exactly. The film Blackfish, I think, and that shows the power of media and films and images and sensitizing people to what's really going on. And, you know, to give people credit, when they see, when they learn the truth, they don't like it and they demand change. And that's what we're seeing now with um, with bans on keeping whales in captivity and many more issues where people are saying, let's just stop hurting animals in these ways. Are we turning a corner here? Oh, yeah, we're on the cusp of turning a major, major corner. I mean, when you look at the civil rights movements of of the last few centuries, 
Um, the judge himself in the case yesterday brought up this. This wasn't, wasn't argued by counsel, but he noted that just within the last hundred years, women weren't considered persons. They didn't have the right to um, vote or sit in the Senate. And that changed very recently. Sometimes it, it feels like it was much longer ago than it was, but it was only about a hundred years ago. And, you know, only 150 years ago or so, there, there was still legal slavery throughout much of the world, and that's changed as well. And we're moving on to animals now. That's, that's one major group that still suffers a lot and is extremely oppressed by other people. And, uh, you know, I think that's the new civil rights battle of our time. And, and I know, look, at there are cynics out there, and I get that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, women, at, at one time, blacks were considered property, not human beings. Uh, women, did, as you say, 100 years ago, finally gained that right. Uh, and and but we need. It's not as if we have to extend the same sort of thing to animals. But the thing is, I think we are are starting to gain at least a, a societal respect uh, for for life, uh, as as opposed to simply saying, "Well, that they're just there for our good." That that we yeah we may be at the top of the, the you know the list here when it comes to development. I'm not so sure that we are when you look at at the way some other animals act. And and now that we know a lot more about them from science. But we have to understand that we're just part of the group here. Like, you know, we're, we're all in the same situation here. You know, this is the human species. That's a different species. But we're all on Earth. And I think there has to be a, a respect for that. And I think that's starting to happen. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think one thing that's driving that as well is science. The more we study animals and the more we learn about their families, their lives, the, the friendships that they form, their emotions, their mental states, I think the more that we realize that they're really just like us in all the ways that matter, the same reasons that we decide that we're going to respect fellow human beings, those same reasons should apply to animals as well. Well, I mean, you know, a rather famous uh, leather store went out of business a year or two ago because uh, of sales that went down, and I'd, I, I'm trying to connect the dots here, and maybe it was because the people are starting to understand that, you know what, we don't need to wear that anymore. There are other other options that we can and should be doing at this stage, and, and, and I'm starting to hear that from more and more people. It's, it's almost becoming a mainstream uh, m- mode of thinking now. I agree, Bill. And, you know, it's funny you bring up the leather store example because uh, I, I live in Ottawa, and in the Rideau Center, the mall near my house, uh, Danier Leather, and that might be the one you were referring yeah. to. The, the store there has been sitting empty for a long time. And um, just recently I saw uh, papering over of the outside of the store indicating that it was going to be a mat and nat store, which is a vegan leather store. So it's made from not animals. It's synthetic leather, but they sell purses and bags and shoes. And so that's being taken over by a, a store that um, doesn't sell leather, but sells a similar product that's produced without killing animals. So I think that's the future. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what it's going to be interesting to see what happens in May. Uh, May fourth, I think, is the next time that they're going to be in court. And I know it was packed to the rafters yesterday uh, for the, the the closing arguments. I would imagine there's going to be a lot of folks showing up for this one too, uh, because notwithstanding the fact that this look may look like a one-off to an awful lot of people, uh, I think a lot of people in the industry, I think a lot of people in our, in our society are looking at this, Camille, to see what's going to happen and and what the judgment's going to be. Oh, I agree. I agree. This has been one of the biggest cases about animals in Canadian history. You know, maybe the biggest, if I could say so. Uh, the courtroom was packed yesterday, as you said, to the rafters. The judge kindly let people sit all over the floor, including in front of the bar that usually only lawyers are behind or in front of, because he knew that there was such interest in this case. And uh, I think it's going to send shockwaves around the world, no matter what happens on May 4th. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton Police uh, yesterday released their year-end hate crime report for 2016. 
Uh, generally, according to the report, uh, hate crimes were relatively static from the year before. But is that really reflective of what's going on in the community right now? A number of people are asking that question after looking at some of these statistics. As a matter of fact, Chief Eric Gert yesterday mentioned that uh, he feels that an awful lot of hate crimes are going unreported. So these numbers may not actually be accurate. I want to bring Evelyn Myrie into the conversation, exceptional community strategist, freelance columnist, motivational speaker, and always a welcome guest on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Evelyn. How are you this morning? Hey, good morning, Bill. I'm doing well. Thank you. Listen, you, uh, you've, you've looked at some of the stats here. Give me your read on what the report says. Well, I'm, I was at the City Hall yesterday listening to the presentation, and yeah. certainly we're concerned that the numbers are so high still in Hamilton. I, I know 115. Uh, it's still it's high, and I know that we talk about outreach to get people to report. I think there's still an on the uh, on the reporting, but it really t- gives a temperature, a snapshot of the community and how what people are many people are experiencing. What troubles me too is the growing uh, on top of the list of the black community uh, perennially, and it almost becomes a normalization piece where it's normal that the black community is going to be on top. And quite frankly, I'm a little I was a little disappointed that there was not uh, enough to do ar- about it at the police services uh, meeting yesterday. It was just, you know, well, this, again, the black community is at the top and continue looking down at what are the trends that are changing. And uh, so that kind of, as a, someone with the African Canadian Action Congress, we're a bit concerned about that, almost like we expect hate crime to be around and we expect it to be the way it's been. Um, so that's coming from the African community um, point of view. You know, we, we just discussing with our members, there was a sense of the normalization of, of hate crime against the black community. That's statistics across Canada, across Hamilton for a number of years, and it doesn't seem to be sh- changing. So despite the fact that we're not new Canada, we are not new to Canada, despite the fact that we are well entrenched here, uh, with the color of our skin becomes a, 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 a you know, a, body for attack. So um, it's, it's disturbing uh, to tell that message to our children to say that, you know, you are welcome, you are part of this community. When we keep uh, these kind of messages reinforcing, um, you know, the negative attitude that we still um, receive. If, so we are, if, yeah, we, go ahead. I was going to say, if year after year, the, the majority of these uh, hate crimes that, that are chronicled here by police uh, are, are directed, the majority of them anyway, directed towards blacks. Uh, is Do you see, Evelyn, that, that there's any reaction to that in, in, in the strategy developed by police services towards uh, I, towards these crimes? And that's some of the things we are going to talk to police about. We've already had a conversation in the African Chinese Action Congress about how we might want to work together better to create some strategies. Uh, I know the community, par- the police partners with many organizations, uh, there's no formalized partnership with the black community at this moment. They do attend events in the community, but there are no strategic partnerships that would help us to look at a, some kind of a strategy. So that's something that we really need to work on. Uh, increasingly, we are, we will not be, you know, we don't want to be flagged as the number one hate group, uh, hate group that's been, uh, group that's been attacked in, in any part of the world. And no one should be. We're not trying to put somebody else on top, mind you. No, no, but, but you don't want people to shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, the blacks are exactly. uh, they're the number one. Well, well, let's move on. And then, and and I'm, I'm not suggesting felt. that's what police and, are saying, and but... It, and that's how it felt, Bill, quite frankly. We had, a, we had a small contingent there listening to it. We huddled together in the hallway after, and that's what we said. And that's what we articulated to 
the news yesterday. It wasn't reflected in the coverage that was done, but that's been a big concern. The normalization of hate crimes against black communities become, oh, well, next group, next thing. That's, that's what we feel. I'm not saying that's the reality, but that's how we feel. And if you feel that way, well, you know, we need to be concerned about Well, we should. Uh, we should. And, and the thing that concerns me is when I see these numbers, and, and we, we've talked about the incidents against the black community, uh, and, and others we've seen here, there's, as you used the phrase a minute ago, Evelyn, there's almost a normalization of this. Uh, yeah. You know, as we go through the news of the week, oh, well, another Jewish cemetery got uh, vandalized. Yeah. Oh, yeah, another, more hate crimes yeah. against black. Oh, well, okay, what else is going on? Uh, we, we, where's the outrage? I guess that's the question we're asking. Right. And that's, we've got to work together in partnership with um, Build Alliances, to work to address this issue, the issues around, um, you know, trans community and certainly that those numbers are growing as well. The attack on the trans community and the LGBT community is definitely concerned. So we need to work in coalitions and make a more robust public awareness campaign. Um, in Hamilton, we need the police to also be more visible in that campaign. I know they do work with many organizations in Hamilton. Um, their presence alone at events is not enough in our community, for example, and we want to find opportunities to build on that and to really expand, develop some kind of a strategic partnership to help drive change anti-racism training. It's not about, well, bullying, which is good. You know, we need to address the issue of bullying, no, no doubt. But on the agenda of the action plan, we didn't see anything to say that we're going to deal with anti-black racism. We need to name it and we need to deal with it. I mean, the the way we look at this, and, and we, by the way, did try to reach out to uh, police services. And we are going to get them on next week to talk about this. Chief Gerd or somebody is going to come and talk about this. They're just unavailable this morning, unfortunately. But but when you see a, a, a pattern developing, and this seems to be the, the what has happened with policing in the past in this community and hopefully in, in most communities, the, the police will develop a strategy and say, hey, we have to do something about this, uh, whether it's break-ins and, or, or car thefts or whatever it might be. But hate crimes have to fall into that, that area too, wouldn't you think, Evelyn, where you say, look at, uh, you know, they say there's an increase of only one hate crime over last year, but I, I, you don't necessarily believe those numbers. I don't think even Chief Gert believed those numbers. <laughs> exactly. But you know I mean, he was, he was skeptical about it yesterday too. He was, and we all are, but the point is that there is a growing number of hate crime. That's a big picture. And number two, as a community, the police is only one part of the solution. Working together, we need to be more robust in our approach, uh, develop better community-wide strategies, do public education awareness, and to name issues of racism. We tend to keep saying things like bullying, and we talk about other issues, but we never... We rarely name anti-black racism. I'm glad to see the Ontario government naming it through the anti-racism secretariat. That's been a big concern uh, over over the years. So uh, why is the black community constantly on top of the targets for hate Evelyn, all across the country? I, I'm, I'm intrigued to get your, your take on this, too. Why? Because Chief Gert talked about this yesterday. You've mentioned this when you've been on the program before, too. Uh, why are these these incidents underreported? Why do so many people that are victimized by this not go to the authorities and, 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 and at least register the fact that it happened? Some of them are not aware. They think it's been minimized. If you've been called the N-word, you know, it's, it's hate-motivated incidences. Uh, when you do see things like swastikas, um, we are all now increasingly uh, aware that we need to report those incidents. When someone is called um, some remarks, Islamophobia uh, remarks without any kind of a visible uh, demarcation, 
some people think it's nothing worth um, reporting, um, but we need to educate the public as to what are the things we need to report, and because the, the, the police do um, collect uh, hate-motivated incidences, so it's important that it's reported. So, you know, there's been a, a growing number of reports, of course, but not enough people know about uh, how to report. Some of them are afraid, of course, of going to the police, and we know the police services with their um, community development workers, such as Sandra Wilson, are out there in the community trying to educate the public about the, the role of policing in Canada, especially for newcomers, uh, not seeing them as enemies but as partners. So more of that has to happen, and more community-based policing strategies will need to be out of, um, rolled out to see those numbers, uh, see that people feel that they can actually Report. How so, severe is that problem? How 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 much of a problem is how much of a factor is that problem? That that, that trust there has to be a trust uh, between victims uh, and 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 obviously the the system that's going to deal with that, whether it's police services, the judicial system, etc. Uh, it's it's been an ongoing problem for many many years. Is it getting better or worse? I think it has gotten better over the years. There are times when it, it gets better, and an incident occurs, people start saying, yeah, "I told you so," and there's a pullback. We have not much of that lately based on my conversations with communities. Um, but people do not speak the same language. Uh, people in um, various, like in downtown core, there are many people in the, um, the, you know, who are new to Canada may not be aware of how to um, report. So we have to work constantly on doing that. At the same time, you know, not just reporting, but also creating um intervention strategies or prevention strategies to help um, to help people who are, are in this situation. But, you know, the police services do a really good job when someone reports a hate crime. They do come and support you and give you kind of um, uh, counseling support. And I've had the experience myself where I was really impressed with the, the caliber of service and support I received when I was um, racially attacked at one point and um, quite supportive um, services they have there. Uh, rather impressive indeed. But that's so, that's reactive. You'd like to see proactive. Yes, more proactive, educational. And it's such, you know, that is the community's role. It's not the police service. Sure, police sure. is a place you report what happened to you, but we want to build. Um, there's an anti-racist center supposed to open in Hamilton. Hopefully that, you know, will be some of, some of the education that needs to happen. But it, it takes, you know, as Matthew Green, Councilor Green says, you know, let's not be a bystander to bigotry and hatred. So it takes all of us as individuals to make a change. It's not just institutions, but certainly institutions have a role to play, and individuals and neighbors or friends or co-workers, all of us have a role, um, a role to play in eliminating racial discrimination and prejudice and hate from our communities. There's, there's something going on. I, I, these are Hamilton statistics, obviously, Evelyn, but I, I want to talk about the broader picture for just a moment, if we will. And, and, and just... It's 2017, and I think we all want to think that we've become enlightened now. We're smarter. We're we're more aware of, of sensitivities of, of 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 human rights and civil rights. But I, I, when you look at some of these numbers and some of the national numbers and some of the international numbers right now, it, it's almost as if we see a rise in racism, xenophobia, mm-hmm. and 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 a number of other things. I mean, yesterday International Women's Day, and I mean, you know, we we talked about a number of incidents right now and you know, misogynist attitudes that are still prevalent in in many instances like this. It, it it almost seems as if we're backsliding somewhat. I think it it feels that way. You know, there is certainly. A pushback, and the people are being scapegoat. You know, there's a lot of scapegoating going along. 
and uh, people want to blame the other for any misfortune that comes their way, uh, unemployment, uh, promotion, and the like. Um, there's, uh, I just think there's so much division. Um, not in Canada, you're not as bad, thank goodness, but certainly in the states, and it's creeping over our borders. I mean, there was a um, one of politicians here in Canada who's pushing similar ideology as, as the, prime, the president of the United States. So there is, we have to be mindful, be ever vigilant, um, and always push the envelopes for more equality, rights, and justice. Because if, if we go off to sleep, you know, thinking that we are, we are so Canadian, we are different, we are ahead of everyone else, we will, we could find ourselves in, in a deep uh, negative situation where, you know, attacks start to, to increase and people start to feel marginal and dis- disconnected from their communities. So we have to constantly work um, ahead, you know, to uh, put um, prevention programs <clears throat> in place, educational work, collaborative a- approaches, working with various communities and making people feel as though they are. We are one. We are Canadians, and notwithstanding our differences, we have a, um, a role to play in building a great nation, and we are going to be looking, people will look to us, you know, the center of, of excellence, so to speak, around how to live, work, and play together. I mean, it sounds pretty, pretty, um, what's the word, <laughs> naive in a way, but, you know, I'm very hopeful always that as Canadians will do the right things, but we, it won't be done without any con- concerted effort and policy changes and programs implementation and so forth. So I'm really, I see the police report, for example, as one way to remind us that we are, we all have a lot of. I'm on the go, but I'm going to so I think I have to cut my conversation. So yeah, I think we have a long way to go, but we have certainly ahead ahead of many countries. We've got about a minute left, Evan. Let me ask you, where, where do we go from here? I mean, you've got some numbers right now. Uh, Chief Gert uh, yesterday expressed expressed rather some concerns and said, like it's probably worse than that's being reported right now. Uh, so, so there's some skepticism about this. There's, I think, an acknowledgement that we've got a problem here. Where do we go? How do we handle this? I mean, I can remember, I know after the 9/11 attacks and the the, the re- attacks on the mosque and and the temple here in Hamilton, you know, Mayor Wade struck the the racism committee and and people from all over the community were here. Yeah, do we, do we need to reconstitute that? I think something like that would be a great approach where we bring together all the groups, um, the LGBTQ community, the the uh, trans, the um, Jewish communities, and other groups affected by hate crime, and look at uh, talking about how we can work together with institutions and with our communities to drive change. So I think that would, I don't, instead of reporting every year saying here are the numbers and go back to the next, the following year, what's the, where are the numbers? Uh, I think we need to take a more proactive approach. And I think uh, the new chief might have an opportunity to, to shape that. Be, well, I'm excited about positive talking to him and others about how we can work together, especially with a new group, the African Kids in Congress. We're very eager to engage in more deeper conversation about um, improvements and anti-racism. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Research from a McMaster University professor is being cited by Kelly Leach, the conservative leadership hopeful. However, the uh, professor who's written a book about the immigration system called Points of Entry uh, is getting frustrated that his research is being used to promote her proposal to screen immigrants for anti-Canadian values. 
Victor Sasquich is the uh, sociology professor from McMaster University and the author of Points of Entry, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Let's uh, maybe start at the beginning. And uh, when did you first uh, find out uh, or discover, I suppose, that uh, that Ms. Leach was actually using your data, your information, and your book as 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 a, a support mechanism, I guess, for her policies? It was about, uh, I guess, late October, early November. I got a uh, email out of the blue from her assistant asking if uh, she could call me and uh, talk to me about uh, my book. And I thought. I kind of it caught me by surprise because I didn't think that my book really had anything to do with what she was uh, floating at the time. So um, when I got the call I, uh, or the email, I dug a little bit and, and found that she was citing my book as a backgrounder for in her comp- campaign launch speech. Uh, and so I thought, okay, that's where that's where the uh, request was coming from. So I did talk to her again. It was. Uh, back in uh, end of October, early November. Uh, And so we talked for about half an hour or so, and I explained uh, to her uh, why I thought uh, the proposal to screen all immigrants and visitors uh, for Canadian values was not really practical or or didn't really make sense from a policy point of view. And and so we chatted for about half an hour. And uh, she said, well, thank you. Uh, for your uh, input, uh, but that uh, she was still going to pursue this uh, policy uh, proposal. And we sort of left it at uh, that, and then, uh, much to my surprise, uh, she was waving it around uh, a few days later at the uh, 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 at one of the uh, first debates uh, and, um, and then um, promoting it as uh, support for her, her policy. I, any author would love publicity to try to promote a book, <laughs> but but this uh, this seems to be a little bit uh, over the top, and and for all the wrong reasons, doesn't it, Victor? Well, it's yeah, it's a bit frustrating because again, there you know, there's nothing in my book. Uh, there there's no place in my book where I actually ever talk about uh, screening immigrants for Canadian values. Um, I've published uh, nine books actually over the course of my career, and. Uh, in none of those books do I ever talk about uh, screening immigrants for Canadian values, and and so, um, and 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 actually, um, in a lot of my other research, uh, I find that uh, immigrants actually uh, tend to become uh, Canadian, and they value the same things as other Canadians. They, you know, over time, and and certainly over the generations. Uh, immigrants become a lot like everybody else in terms of what they want out of life and what they value and so on. And so I guess I'm part of me is frustrated by the fact that she doesn't really seem to understand uh, what immigrants go through uh, when they come here and, and, and what immigrants think and, and value. She seems to assume uh, that somehow they come with non-Canadian values and put uh, the country at risk of whatever she thinks uh, uh, we're at risk from. Did did Miss uh, Leach actually ever read the book? Did she acknowledge that? Well, I think so, yeah. She uh, uh, she or, or somebody on her campaign team uh, has certainly uh, read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> 
Well, here's here's the and I'm glad we've got the opportunity to talk about this, Professor, because I, 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 I like many other commentators around this country right now, I, I have commented about uh, Kelly Leach's proposal and, and the screening of immigrants and and her her assertion that the system is is broken and needs to be fixed. And and my initial question, I've been vilified by a number of her supporters for this, is please explain to me what's wrong. Why is the system broken? Is and is it really broken? Uh, and I think there's there's an awful lot of people in this country that really don't quite understand what the process is. I mean, if you were to listen to some people, not just Kelly Leach, but others who who advocate for this sort of thing, uh, they they. They draw a scenario right now as if people are just jumping off airplanes into Canada and the, and the immigration people say, yeah, come on in, come on in. And that's that's not the way this process has worked, to my knowledge, and I think you outlined that pretty clearly in the book. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I don't believe it's broken either. And, um, again, I think that if, she, if Kelly Leach does think it's broken... Uh, it's not the liberals that uh, the current liberal government that broke it. Uh, actually, the the research that I did uh, was while the conservatives were in power. And uh, if she thinks that the system is broken, then uh, it was under her watch or her government's watch that uh, they broke it or helped contribute to breaking it. So a lot of the things that I describe in my book in terms of uh, the existence of uh, uh, processing targets and, and the fact that uh, relatively few interviews are done with uh, visitors and certain categories of permanent resident applicants uh, today. Uh, those are, are processes that were accelerated actually under uh, Jason Kenney and Chris Alexander's uh, watch, uh, and she was at the cabinet table. Uh, at the time when presumably they were doing these things or undertake when the immigration department was undertaking these initiatives. I didn't hear her ever complain about what the Conservatives were doing about uh, immigration when they were in power. So it strikes me as as a little bit uh, disingenuous now to suddenly discover that, uh, oh, the system is broken, right? If If it is, and I don't think it is, uh, then she helped break it. <laughs> Well, you, you touched on something that I think is very germane to, to her points as opposed to what you've articulated in the book, though. Uh, you mentioned the word uh, quotas, and, and this is something that she talks about consistently, of course, when she mentions uh, her policies right now. And you, in the book, talk about targets, and there's a big difference between those two. Well, every I think, I think Canadians need to understand that uh, uh, every year uh, for the last I don't know, 20 years, 25 years, uh, the immigration minister stands up in uh, the House of Commons at, you know, the, in November and announces the, the target for uh, immigration levels for the coming year. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the target uh, for 2017 is something like 300,000, plus or minus. There's some variation. And then that target is carved up in terms of the specific kinds of visa uh, visas that should be issued in terms of skilled workers, family class, refugees, and so on. And then those targets are f- further uh, carved up in terms of visa offices. So, you know, the visa office in Nairobi is expected to process X number of visas and so on and so forth. 
So that process isn't new. Uh, that's been going on for, uh, as I say, a long time, or that system is going on for a long time. And these targets are really um, uh, expectations, and, and they help uh, you know, guide uh, uh, productivity monitoring of visa officers, right? Every, every job that I know of has expectations about productivity, right? University professors are expected to produce research. Police officers are expected to write tickets. Um, you know, people that write parking tickets are, are, are expected to write tickets and so on. So everyone has productivity expectations, and so, so do visa officers. So that, too, isn't new, uh, and it's not a quota. Uh, it's a target that they are strongly encouraged uh, to meet, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that meeting the target is putting Canada at risk or what she says, that, that visa officers are, are admitting people who are otherwise uh, inadmissible to Canada. I think she's uh, confusing. Well, she mentioned in uh, her now famous video, and I'm sure you've seen it, uh, everybody yeah. else seems it's gone viral now, uh, that uh, that they are so inundated uh, with with immigrants uh, that that basically they're cutting corners uh, in in this whole process. Well, again, I think there's there's actually two uh, two types of decisions that visa officers have to make when they're looking at someone who's applying for permanent resident status. One is what's called a selection decision, and basically that decision involves assessing whether an individual who uh, is is eligible for the category of visa that they're applying for. So there's obviously certain criteria that they have to meet, and these are set out in advance and so on and so forth. So that's a selection decision. Uh, but then there's also what's called an inadmissibility decision. So in the Ref- Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, there are a number of uh, reasons why someone who might actually qualify from a selection point of view, would be inadmissible. So, you know, if they have a criminal record or have committed uh, human rights abuses or have a medical condition that would cause excessive demand on the Canadian healthcare system. So there's a number of inadmissibility criteria. Uh, and so visa officers uh, do not... Uh, the time pressures really are not relevant at all for inadmissibility decisions. They really do care about the integrity of the immigration system, protecting uh, uh, the interests of Canada and Canadians. And the time pressures that I describe that they're under uh, don't are, are, are not relevant uh, at all, as far as I can tell, when it comes to those more serious uh, inadmissibility issues. But those that are not just Kelly Leach, but others that, that are advocating for a, 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 a stronger screening system seem to have omitted that, that second uh, category, that inadmissibility uh, decision-making process that you've talked about, Professor, that uh, they, they seem to suggest that that's where the flaw is. But you seem to say that uh, in, in your book uh, that that's actually that's the, the fact check, really, about the individual. Well, there's 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 different kinds of facts, right? So, um, and 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 the inadmissibility issues, I think, are the far more serious ones in terms of you know uh, what she seems to imply is 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 uh, you know uh, that somehow uh, visa officers are putting uh, or the system is putting Canada at risk because of they're not 
they don't have the time to dig into those kinds of facts. Well, um, in, in in a way, uh, the, the, again, the, the time pressures aren't relevant. If there are concerns about an applicant's inadmissibility, uh, they actually dig very deeply uh, into a person's background to make sure that you know they they haven't got these uh, issues on their uh, record, right? The other selection decisions uh, are really about um, you know how much experience does an individual have, right? So for for uh, skilled worker, economic class uh, uh, visas. We have a, a point system, and people have to uh, indicate, you know, how much experience and education they have. Uh, and there's always some questions about uh, experience, education, how you measure these things, and and so uh, that's where the there's more ambiguity and and a little bit more discretion uh, in the the system, and that's where the time pressures uh, I think come into play. But I don't think that those uh, those kinds of uh, issues really put Canada at risk of anything. Well, it isn't that the overriding question here that we need to ask ourselves. I mean, no system is perfect. I, mean, I, I don't want to create that illusion. I, we don't want to go to the other end of the spectrum here. But at the same time, you've done a lot of research on this, Professor. Have you found evidence that there are people falling through the cracks and the system is not working effectively? Well, uh, obviously, you're right that the system isn't perfect. Um, and you know some some uh, individuals apply for a visitor visa, and when they come to Canada, they claim refugee status. Uh, but there's a process uh, in place to sort through that, right? We have an immigration uh, uh, and refugee board. We have the federal court that reviews uh, decisions, and so there are. Uh, safeguards to the system, and there are uh, fair and legal ways that we've developed to adjudicate cases where you know people do fall through the cracks and they come to light and so on. So, you know, I think uh, you know just taking the decision-making system that I describe uh, in isolation uh, is puts it a little bit out of context in in so far as. Uh, again, there are uh, various checks and balances to deal with these kinds of issues as as they uh, come up, right? So if someone uh, is discovered to have uh, not told the entire truth about their, their background uh, on their visa application and, and they do have uh, links to uh, human rights abuses in, you know, in their country of origin, 10 or 20 years ago, if those are discovered, there are measures we have in place to deal with those things. But, it, you know, it's a it's a fair and legal system, and so people have to have, um, uh, you know, the, the rule of law uh, uh, make, help make these judgments, right? And we have that. Just we got about a minute or two left here. I just wanted to get your your take on what seems to be happening in, in, in a much more global situation here, Professor. Uh, this country was built on immigration. So are our neighbors to the south. Uh, that's that's what populated our countries uh, as as we developed from those early days. Yet there seems to be almost an anti-immigration uh, mindset in in some places like now. Where's where's that coming from? Well, <clears throat> I think we have to look at it historically, right? So even though we are 
a country of immigrants, I agree, that, you know, uh, every every way every wave of immigration has provoked in Canada anti-immigrant sentiments. You know, there were there was there were sentiments uh, uh, opposing Chinese and Japanese immigration a mm-hmm. uh, hundred years ago when uh, you know there were there were people in Canada who were concerned about Ukrainians of all people uh, in the 1910s and 20s uh, about whether whether Ukrainians my you know my uh, mother and father were refugees. Uh, and they got a bit of a hard time uh, in Canada after the Second World War that people didn't think that they were going to be good Canadians and so on. So the you know there, there's always been historically uh, uh, anti-immigrant sentiments, and every new wave of immigrants have have tended to provoke some uh, backlash. So again, I think it's important to keep this in context. Uh, but it is worrying. I think that you know Canada. Uh, generally, is a bit of an outlier uh, compared to other uh, European, uh, to, to compared to the European countries and and to the U.S. That we do tend to support immigration more than these places right now. But there still is, it's not a done deal, and there still are uh, uh, anti-immigrant concerns here that we ought to be. Uh, uh, worrying about the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.